Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2, the deuce. Okay, very light. Could, could hear it though. Could hear it though. What? Well, what are you drinking? I'm uh, drinking a Schnatterbach today. Ooh, nice. always nice. Choice. Nice. And the man that I'm looking directly at his face, Mr. Will the Thrill. And I helped. Oh Lord. Okay. Hey, did we check and make sure that the sound of a beer being cracked open isn't copyrighted? <laughs> we may I have to. to get dinged for. Yeah. I don't want us to get dinged for that. Yeah. So. Uh, we have a couple just catch you guys up kind of things. Number one, I'm pretty sure that uh, a few of you have checked our RSS feed or, you know, when you, when you go to your podcatcher, wherever that might be, you might've noticed that a couple episodes are missing from our repertoire. And that is because Universal Music has decided to target our podcast for takedowns. But it's been very strange and very random. And so we're in the process of kind of fighting them for it because it's all under fair use uh, First Amendment because we are using the music as a teaching tool and it's been all used in context. So it's never been we're just playing these songs at random. It's to give you an example of the era that they were in, the messages that they were trying to convey, all kinds of different things. And so it's not just like random music that we're playing. It's something that is very contextualized. And so we're fighting them right now to get some of our episodes restored. If not, what's going to happen is I'm going to have to re-edit all of them, cut the music down or out completely, and then re-upload the episodes. And in a sweeping gesture of irony, the series that made us a target for this was the Adam Yauk Beastie Boys series we did. So (laughs) I don't think that could write itself any better. So Right. You're using uh, our our music unfairly or you're using uh, without our permission or whatever their argument is about an artist who primarily used (laughs) other people's music (laughs) to craft his own. Yeah, and again, and, and and was given a flyer on said by a number of people like Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, who could have filed a lawsuit, could have asked for a check, and didn't. Yeah. And then the other one that they took from us was protest songs. 
Yeah, the, it's just astounding. <laughs> it could not have been two weirder series, but we're working to get them back up. So somehow, some way, I will make sure that those get re-uploaded in some form so that you guys aren't left hanging with partial episodes. And, and as LD pointed out, you know, the reason the songs are there is to give context to an artist, their growth, and some of the things they did. I, the Alk episodes are just an example of what he did in the studio, you know, what he was able to do. Uh, I know for a fact that uh, the episodes that, you know, we did on our, our drummers were about their style, and what they contributed to the art form as a whole. So, you know, all of it is within the, under that banner of, you know, learning. Yeah, so fingers crossed we can get that fixed and back up to you guys ASAP. I'd also like to point out we aren't reaping uh, great financial rewards for doing <laughs> this podcast. So, I mean, the, the exact amount of money that we have made so far from this podcast has been uh, zero. <laughs> yeah, and it's not like... We're not like monetizing. Other than, uh, other, than a, other than a few patrons who we appreciate very much. But oh, yes. Absolutely, yes. yeah. In terms of benefiting directly from playing the songs, that would be, that would be nothing. That would be a big fat zero. And speaking of our patrons, I do like to first of all thank those who did reach out to us during, you know, our our furlough, our yeah, hiatus. Accidental hiatus. Yeah, the, the accidental <laughs> hiatus, which is a great band name, by the way. <laughs> accidental hiatus. Uh, who reached out to us? You know, we greatly appreciate you checking in on us and making sure that things are okay. And we're glad to get back to this. During that time, we actually heard from someone who was good friends with the late Doug Hopkins. And as you remember, the Doug Hopkins episode, uh, we got a lot of interaction from people on that one. And she was able to provide a lot of details about Doug personally, some of which actually conflicted with the information we were able to research found, you know, in the public sphere. So we're always thankful for people who want to point that out. And, you know, we, we do everything we can to make sure an episode is factual. And in you know, this case, she was privy to a lot of info that would not necessarily be available. Yeah, so, so it was very really like yeah. seriously, we love those the we love those emails that are like, um, actually, this is how it really shook down. So especially if they actually knew the person that we're doing the episode on. Oh yeah, is the case with that one, you know? Yeah, and and we really appreciated the information. We will maybe try to do sort of a like an update if we get enough of these kind of like um actuallys because they're really insightful and they're really interesting to find out like what the real story was behind stuff, not just what appears in a couple of articles that we find online or, you know, wherever we are, wherever we find this information. Yeah. And one of them was the film that's coming out about Doug Hopkins life is in, it's in progress right now. And one of the writers is actually the one who penned one of the keystone articles of our piece on that I believe it was Brian Smith of the Detroit Metro Times. I will I'll fact check that name, but he's apparently on the project, which would be very interesting. Awesome. Yeah. And then I guess the last piece of business is, guys, uh, if you didn't know, we took two weeks off by accident. Uh, I got hired on a feature film called Balloon Animal, <laughs> and it looked really good. Like, that's the thing. The script is really solid. The acting was great. The, the footage looked beautiful. So I'm excited to see this film but um i got hired and i didn't realize that it was going to be 14 to 16 hour days i ended up it was six days a week so it was 12 days straight night shoots night it had night shoots it had i was on my feet so much that my fitbit actually broke on at one point and i had to buy a new one but i was walking up to 60 miles a week so um 
there was not a whole lot of time to record. There was not a whole lot of time to uh, do my research. So sorry about that. And there, well, there actually is one other piece of business and we haven't had to do this a whole lot this year. Uh, last year, it seemed like oftentimes we would spend as much time at the beginning of an episode mourning the entertainers we had lost that week as we did on the subject of that week's episode. <laughs> yes. And we, we really haven't had a, a ton this year, very, that's, which is quite a blessing, but uh, really there was one very uh, notable one in the last week. Mm-hmm. RIP DMX. Yep. Uh, and what was crazy was, I don't know how active you are on Twitter, T, but apparently there was a big brouhaha because they were doing the RIP and rest in power and things like that on Twitter, but he wasn't dead yet. Right. So the family had to send the manager out. And I, I guess like the manager, his representation was like, no, he's on life support. He's still alive. Please stop. Which, which also happened with Tom Petty. Yeah, as you recall, I was um, just going to say this is an increasing problem we've encountered with. It happened with Neil Peart too. There wasn't people want to be first. Noble, yeah, mm-hmm. everybody wants to be. They're 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 too worried about being first and and less worried about being correct. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, the one thing I would point out about DMX, I I I don't know a ton about you know, you know his full catalog. I obviously, know a couple of the bigger hits that that everybody would be familiar with. But it is interesting that I don't know if he still did, but. For a long time and very recently, he lived one county over from where I'm sitting right now in South Carolina. What? Did he really? Really? He lived in DMX lived in Greer. Huh. Wow. <laughs> or, or, or as native South Carolinians refer to it. Gur. 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 Yeah, he lived in Gur. And <laughs> I, I actually know a couple of people that met him, said he was super nice, very cool, very laid back guy. Um, oh yeah, I just read I just read a uh, little article or a little piece on Twitter that was like, yeah, one time he paid five hundred dollars for Girl Scout cookies to help out the troop. Like perhaps in Gur. Maybe in Gur. Because I think people would talk about like, yeah, he'd he'd be like uh just kind of hanging out in Greer sometimes. <laughs> and I <laughs> like now like in downtown he'd just be kind of hanging out and talking to people and just taking pictures and what whatever anybody wanted him to do, you know, but um yeah. so I always thought that was pretty pretty cool. And like you, TJ, I knew the bigger hits that he did, but my main experience with DMX was as an, as an actor. You know, he was in over 40 projects. I mean, films like, you know, the Steven Seagal Exit Wounds. He was in Belly. He was in, uh, I mean, I was exposed more to him as a performer, you know, as an actor. Yeah, so yeah. That, that was certainly a loss in the last week. And hey, let's wait till people actually pass before we uh, say they passed, huh? Yeah, please. Yeah. Well, Prince Philip died as well, but yep. not a singer, so... And he was ninety nine. Rip. And he was that's quite a quite a quite a life well lived there. Yeah. Yeah. When DMX was only fifty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Incredibly young, but so after a lengthy hiatus and and having taken care of uh, all of our uh, other business, I believe that we can now proceed with David Bowie Part Four. And I think actually, I think we actually veer into the nineteen eighties finally. We do. (laughs) Woohoo! We do. I think we actually make it up to the nineties. Oh wow! And again, if we're if if you find that we're uh, crunched for time, feel free to skip over the whole tin machine thing. I'm just gonna point (laughs) Um, out. I actually have a note in in. I have a note. I have a note. You will hear it. I'll say if you can you you can acknowledge it, but there's no need to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's not Cookie Puss or Van Halen Three, but it, it. it wasn't real good. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know what? He's Ziggy, so F it. So when we last left David, 
Uh, he was actually mourning the loss of his friend, John Lennon, who had just been assassinated on the streets of New York, and then finding out that actually he could have been a target as well. So scary. Which is just crazy. So in 1981, David was trying to figure out where to live. He couldn't go to Paris because he was mobbed everywhere he went. While he was there, fans would actually stake out his hotel, and they'd stake out other hotels that they thought he might be in. So that was weird. Kyoto and Tokyo were magnets, but they weren't practical because his son was still in school in Scotland. So he had to find someplace in Europe and he had enough of London and he found Montreux. And it was the place where Mary and Percy Shelley went to spend holidays at the lake with Lord Byron. And that's where they wrote the novel Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Uh, it was beautiful and it was tranquil and it, and it attracted a ton of celebrities, including Audrey Hepburn, Richard Burton. And could you just st- say what I just wrote? Could you just say what I wrote right there? Well, I can. But first, is that Noel Coward, I assume? Yeah, Noel, Noel Coward. Coward was there. And as uh, LD put it, quote, stupid Phil Collins, end quote. <laughs> that's not, that's- uh, I'm reading this off of the script. And and I don't know if it's at this point, but eventually also Queen, correct? We get there. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. In fact, we get there real quick. And stupid Phil Collins. (laughs) No, I actually wrote and stupid. It it is in the script verbatim. I'm telling you. (laughs) Okay. So the Rolling Stones actually had a mobile studio, which they Mm -hmm. parked beside a casino on the edge of the lake, (laughs) which was famed for drugs and debauchery as much as anything that was actually recorded in it. <laughs> uh, Deep Purple put the town on the map when they made Machine Head there in 1971, oh, wow. which was yep. arguably one of the greatest rock albums of all time. Yeah. And Montreux is mentioned quite prominently in their most famous song. Smoke on the Water. Yup. It was written after a fan had misfired a flare at Frank Zappa's gig, <laughs> and uh, it landed, I guess, on the casino and the place burned down. <laughs> So that's how you got smoke on the water. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, But when Queen purchased the facility in 1978, a new era was born. Hmm. Uh, Having recorded his album Lodger there previous, David acquiesced. There would be more Bowie at Montreux albums to come. Because, you know, he does these like Bowie in Berlin. He had the Berlin trilogy. So now he's going to have the Montreux series of albums which was Never Let Me Down in 1987, Black Tie, White Noise, and the Buddha of Suburbia soundtrack in 1993, and One Outsider in 1995. So let's talk about Queen for a second, because I have never had a conversation about Queen ever on this podcast. We didn't have an entire month about one of their members. So in 1981, they convened in Montreux to begin what would become the album hot space okay so there is a pub on the main street called the white horse at grand route 28 which was known to musicians as the blank gigi which is now sadly closed or the blanc because it's b-l-a-n-c blanc but it's closed uh it was a place where everyone working at mountain studio would congregate and mountain studio is the the main studio in Montreux. So a couple of bands would overlap when they were doing their recordings, and then they'd all kind of just end up at the blank Gigi. And Queen would hang out there, mainly Roger and Brian, but Freddie would often turn up. Excuse me, you, Dr. 
Brian. I'm sorry, Doc, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Saint Brian May. <laughs> uh, usually with Esquire. a- Yes, uh, Freddie would often turn up usually with a young French boy. So there's that, but he wasn't out. So nobody said anything because those were completely different times. Queen loved Montreux and having their own studio there made for good business because they could go stay there whenever they wanted, do the recordings. And David was Rick Wakeman's neighbor who... Oh, which is awesome. Do you guys know who Rick Wakeman is? Yeah. Yes. Okay. From well, yes. What, <laughs> do I know who he is? Yes. Okay. He's arguably one of the greatest keyboard players in rock. I'm going to put that out there. Okay. Yeah. He's with Yes, Deep Purple. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, TJ, but when it comes to keyboard players, he's probably top three. He's right up there. Yeah. Absolutely. For All sure. Right. His solos are unbelievable, especially the live stuff. Oh. The fifth, yes, the 15-minute the 15, the 15 keyboard solo. Oh, he'll just rock out. Yeah. Really? The guy's amazing. Yeah. Well, well they were, so- were, were, were heavy. Uh, yes, was a, he was, he was, pro- most of the outfits he was involved in were, considered prog rock so yeah 20 minute keyboard solos were like no problem and were well, quite frequent so he's kind of in the same vein as neil peart like the prog rock same genre same genre sort okay. of yeah but. okay it's time for ld to make a horrible confession okay we have been doing this podcast for what two years now um yeah. or at least i have i am the worst person with people's names when it comes to people in bands we literally I love Bare Naked Ladies. I owned all of their albums. I will still listen to alcohol, even though I don't drink it. It's I love them. Today, we actually had to Google who any member of Bare Naked Ladies was. I am the worst. So if you're like, oh, yeah, Rick Wakeman. Now, if you had said, oh, uh, Steven Tyler. I know who Steven Tyler is. <laughs> so apologies to the Bare Naked Ladies. We are huge fans of your music. We're sorry we can't remember any of your names. I still can't. We just Googled it. Is it Cougar Googling? Cougar Googling. Jim Cregan was Kevin Cregan. Okay, there's two Cougar Googlians. There's two Cregans. I think they're brothers. So anyway, let's get back to, uh, (laughs) let's get back to something I know, which is David Bowie and Queen. So Mountain Studios engineer, the late David Richards, who was working with Rick and the rest of Yes, assisted Tony and David on the 1977 album heroes when they were in berlin he was booked at mountain to record the track cat people putting out the fire which he had written with producer giorgio moroder for the film cat people when david wandered into the studio after leaving the pub he found queen mid-session it was an extremely long night said brian may we were all drunk in the studio and we were just for fun playing all sorts of other people's songs and just jamming and that was basically, they would just like lay down whatever came to their head. So Freddie had actually seen David in The Elephant Man on Broadway and considered him a remarkable talent and was up for collaboration. In the end, David said, this is stupid. Why don't we just write one of our own? So what came out of these guys getting together this one night was actually a song that they had called People on the Street, which more or less... in evolved into the song that I'm going to play for you right now, (laughs) which is Under Pressure.
this is about david bowie but if you want to have your minds collectively blown just go listen to there's a there's a way to listen to freddie's vocals isolated, isolated. <gasps> it's, it's on youtube yeah you, you can you can find it on youtube oh my Freddie god Mercury isolated vocals under pressure and make sure that you don't have a dog nearby <laughs> <laughs> well because there's that one point where you're like man he is really high oh god he's going higher there's no way he get how did he do that? To the, to the point that, and, and most people probably know the part we're talking about, I did not realize that that was a human voice yeah. when it got to the last part. I thought they kind of blended it into an instrument of some kind. And, but it, and it's like, no, Freddie actually hit that note. Oh, yep. my God. Yep, that's just Freddie. <laughs> and we were talking about oh, this during the song. Uh, LD and I have seen Queen with Adam Lambert, and we've seen numerous Queen tribute bands. And I think the only two vocalists who hit that note were Adam Lambert, Adam and uh, Mark, Mark Martell. Martell. Yeah, we're the only two I've seen. I am, yeah. I am such a fan of Mark Martell. Actually, funny enough, if you go back and watch uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, they actually blended Mark Martell's voice into Rami's voice to create the Freddie voice, which I think they actually blended Freddie as well. And there's another thing like, but it takes four people to do Freddie. It's not there. there truth, truthfully, there aren't many men who can hit that note. No, there aren't many like, women who can hit that. There note. are a lot of women who can, but there are all the number of men who can pull that off on command. I mean, you're talking like handful. Okay. So what were you going to say about, I, I was going to say that this song always reminds me of the karaoke bar we used to frequent now, if you're singing karaoke and you're going up around 12 midnight or 12.30, I argue that's a pivotal slot because you set the tone for the rest of the night before the bar closes. So LD and a mutual friend of ours got up and did this song, and it was going to go one of two ways. It was either going to have everybody closing out their tabs and going home, but that is not what happened. <laughs> they blew the doors off the place. Everyone went berserk. The bar just ate it up. It was, it was that song, and it was, it was unbelievable. 
uh, it was fun too because I actually got to do Freddie, and then John, our mutual friend, John Bowie, was yeah. Bowie, and it was just so much fun. But like, I stopped drinking, so I can't hit those notes anymore, or at least I don't think I can hit those notes anymore. Perhaps if I had some liquor, it would be something different. But it was a memorable performance. That's yes. what I'm saying. So if you guys can't tell, I truly love Under Pressure. It's one of my favorite songs by collectively by Queen and David Bowie. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't matter who it's attributed to. It's two powerhouse vocals with an incredible band back behind them. I mean, there's not much that I can say where you guys aren't like rolling your eyes because, yeah, you guys know how much I love both of these artists. Mm. And so it's like the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of songs. <laughs> It's just two great tastes that taste great together. You got chocolate in my peanut butter. You got peanut butter in my chocolate. You got David Bowie in my queen. You got queen in my David Bowie. <laughs> Either way, it's a win. I'll eat both of them. I Okay. <laughs> so Dave recalled, David recalled that the song was written from the ground up on the night that I visited the studio. I believe the riff had already been written by Freddie and the others, so we jointly put together the different chord selections and kind of made it a cohesive piece of music. Then Freddie and I came up with our own individual top-line melodies. So when you hear Freddie sing, that's what Freddie wrote, and when you hear me sing, that was mine. We worked on the lyrics together, and I still can't believe that we had the whole thing written and recorded in one evening flat. Now, it is to be noted that everyone involved in creating the song has subsequently given a conflicting account about how the song had happened, but because of time and alcohol notwithstanding, none of them can remember for sure. So in October of 1981, that single became David's first release recording with another artist, and that reached number 29 in the U.S. and became Queen's second UK number one hit and David's third after Space Oddity and Ashes to Ashes. But the hit wasn't the only thing that David had to celebrate because he had just gotten the word that his contract with Tony DeFreeze, who we talked about in the last episode, uh, th their ties had all fully been severed. So he would never receive any more of David Bowie's money. He got rid of the house that he and Angie found and he got a chateau on the edge of a forest built in 1900 for a Russian prince. So mm -hmm. he was doing okay. Also, that is such a David Bowie thing to do is to buy a chateau on the edge of a forest built for a Russian prince. Yeah, that tracks. Now, he still wanted to be an actor on stage and screen. And so he made The Hunger with Susan Sarandon. And here's some tea for you guys. He secretly had a three-year affair with her. <gasps> now, I'm shocked, said no one. <laughs> <laughs> he went off to New Zealand to make his Oscar bid in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and he gave it his best shot, but it was still far from being enough to bag him a gold-plated naked guy. It's weird because David never really generated the kind of acclaim and attention that he won from being an actor like he did good with the elephant man and he's incredible in his music videos but he hadn't found any film role that had hit really well yet and i say i say yet because i'm pretty sure anybody listening to this podcast knows what's coming up in just a little uh, bit. i've been got, talking about this for weeks we've got <laughs> other things we got to cover before we get there but <sighs> but the thing is he had made several movie attempts and other than the man who fell to earth none of them really garnered any kind of acclaim or attention, no matter how good of an actor he seemed to be. And the thing is, if you watch The Man Who Fell to Earth or Cracked Actor or anything that he's in, like, he does it flawlessly. He does it effortlessly. It's just 
that the projects are so strange that I think that a lot of people are edged out of them. You know, don't, I think a lot of people are, to what's the best way to put this, turned off by it because the subject matter can be really weird. Yeah, and if you think about his past as, I mean, a mime opening for T-Rex, you're talking about a guy that is a bit, you know, avant-garde you know he's not gonna do the conventional stuff yeah he's not gonna do here to eternity exactly yeah that's not his thing leave that to frank sinatra yeah so there are some of the things that author of the book hero david bowie by leslie and jones mentions as standouts to her uh there are snippets to cherish in some precious moments where he succeeded in recording a little of the real david eric idol's 1983 comedy yellowbeard features Mm -hmm. him in a literal walk-on role to raise a Twitter. And there was a Jules Temple 1984 short about screaming Lord Byron and an extended play video of a single for Blue Jean is a Goshen top-notch, overworked, but nicely Michael Caine-esque performance. And later on in life, he actually did an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants and an episode of Extras with Ricky Gervais where he plays himself and... I never, I've heard of the show before. Extras, have you heard of it? I've heard, I haven't seen an episode though. Like it's literally, yeah. apparently Ricky Gervais plays an extra trying to get roles on TV shows. That sounds funny. Which is something that, you know, living in Los Angeles, I'm pretty sure a lot of us know what it's like to be an extra in a movie because uh, I'm straight out of central casting, you guys. Is that the one with Ian McKellen where he tells him about acting? Or is that? Uh, that no, that I think is that was just brilliant like, though, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Cian, 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 wizard wizard yes um he continued to read scripts and look at parts he told a journalist in 1983 and i do the parts that i consider to be worth doing but i suppose that singing is a lot more under my control that's what i've always done and i'm not going to give that up so like he was actively looking for acting roles but knew that he wasn't like a good fit for a ton of them and that he also knew that music was kind of his thing so i'm gonna interrupt myself with a short sponsor break and we will be right back and we are back and we're gonna jump back into david bowie now so in 1982 bowie had all but cut off contact with his half-brother terry now if you guys need a little bit of a refresher terry was his half-brother and terry suffered severely from schizophrenia the last time they had met was at mayday hospital in i think crydon where terry was taken after a early suicide attempt Mm. he had thrown himself from a hospital window and permanently damaged his leg and arm according to one of bowie's aunts the singer promised that he would get his brother out of cane hill but then never saw him again bowie often claims schizophrenia ran in his family his mother was the eldest of six and three of his aunts earlier had been diagnosed with the illness and spent time in institutions. One was given electroshock therapy and another one had a lumbotomy. Speaking to Rolling Stone magazine in 1975, he said, everyone says, oh yes, my family is quite mad, but mine really is. Oh, wow. So he was rid of RCA. He had a new recording contract with EMI America and it was time for him to get back into the studio. But what happened next would have lasting repercussions for the next 22 years. Apparently, David got Coco to do his dirty work. Do we all remember who Coco is? His go-to, his, yeah. That's his, like, lifeline. That's his, yeah, yeah, that's his, the person who runs his life. Tony Visconti received a brief call informing him that David had, quote-unquote, met someone else and that his services were no longer required. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they wouldn't work together again for 22 years. 
Uh, Nile Rodgers was on a nudist beast the first time he ever heard David Bowie's music. He was on a retainer in a Miami Beach nightclub hanging out with a female staff photographer, and they decided to arrange a saucy date among the dunes. Oh, saucy. Uh, and the photographer had actually bought a tape of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and Niall didn't have any idea of who Bowie was, who Ziggy was, what Ziggy was, and it, he kind of just had, it was a blind spot for him. And he Which is said, odd. Yeah. But Which he, is very I, odd because Nile Rogers seems very much like a person who lives and breathes music. You would think by we're talking early '80s now, yeah, that he would be familiar with Bowie. So that that's actually really interesting. Yeah. Um. So the Chic co-founder, because if you guys don't know, Nile Rogers was part of Chic. Um. He finally and got a hell of, and, a, and quite and, and quite an acclaimed producer as well. Yes. He finally got to meet Bowie uh, during a bender in a bar. <laughs> Oliver Reed there? I mean, <laughs> well, their go between was Billy Idol. <laughs> nice. So I guess Billy Idol was instrumental in getting David Bowie and Nile Rogers together. Oh, he's your middleman. That just, is, yeah. Just when you think, you think, oh, we've hit some normalcy. No. Like Nile Rogers is on a nude beach listening to Bowie for the first time and then has Billy Idol hook them up. It's the greatest, greatest story ever. So weird. Like, it's your life is put together by a Mad Lib. I'm sorry. So the because the story can't get more bananas, right? Niall chatted up David, and they were going to collaborate on the album that would become the biggest selling record of David's career. Yep. Yep. I thought about how all my songs start with a hook, because in the Black world, we don't have any situations where you have a chance to get a hit. You have to feed the people the dessert before the main course, explains Niall. So I said, let's put the hook at the beginning. Let's have the first words out of your mouth be, let's dance. Yes. He really fought that idea for a while, and then finally he relented. He was like, okay, fine, we'll do it your way. Years later in an award ceremony, he, when he was presented with a prize, he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to give this to Niall Rogers, the only man on earth who could ever get me to start the song with the chorus. <laughs> Let's Dance became the fourth of David's five number ones of the songs found on the album. Uh, the other ones are Modern Love and China Girl and Let's Dance. And if you if you don't know this, China Girl was actually written by Iggy Pop. Pop. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the videos, the subsequent videos for both China Girl and Let's Dance were statements against racism and oppression. And 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 wasn't, um, at least in part, David covering China Girl a financial favor to his friend Iggy? It might have been. I don't have I not heard that. that. It seems like I've read that somewhere before. And, and let's not, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the talent he brought in. For oh, yeah. Album. Another one we've done an episode on, Mr. Stevie Ray Vaughan, I believe. The great Stevie Ray Vaughan. That was one and, of the first episodes we ever did. That was like the first five, yeah. I think, five episodes we ever did. And if you if you if you listen listen to the music on the Let's Dance album, it's unmistakable who's playing oh, guitar. No yeah. All right. So with that being said, we're gonna listen to David Bowie's one of David Bowie's biggest hits, which is Let's Dance. Shoot. 
I mean, there's so many reasons why that's one of the top albums in the Bowie canon. I mean, it's just so good. You can't, yes. You really can't beat it. I will say it is a little bit long in the tooth toward the end. It gets mildly repetitive, but it was the 80s and there's a lot of cocaine. And they were also coming out of the 70s where they didn't know how to end a song, right? Yeah, according yeah. to Garth Brooks, yes. Yes, well, they didn't. And um, But the whole album is just, it's great for a lot of reasons. There are some people who, who claim that this, is he, that this was David selling out or going pop. And I really think that those people can bite me because... <laughs> My professional opinion. To be perfectly frankly, first of all, he has dabbled in every genre pretty much that there is. Over the course, he has shape-shifted, he has done, he, he's done this, and then he's done that, and he never stays in the same place for very long, and, and didn't after this album. Correct. But you put a genius like Bowie with a world-class musician and producer like Nile Rodgers, and then you put in one of the handful of, of best guitarists to ever pick the instrument up. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's great. And the so the songs are great. They're played great. The production is absolutely flawless. It's it's a it's a wonderful, I love it. We could sit here and play every single off of it and I'd be cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Christmas is for. Yay. So when it comes to Let's Dance, yes, it did have that commercial success. It did have that mainstream pop flow. But the thing is, David Bowie... I always feel was ahead of the curve when it came to music. Because if you see after this, there is a, a wave of acceptance of that new wave music genre. So like the psychedelic furs yeah. and those guys really came to prominence. It was 82, and, I, and I'm not saying that David Bowie led the charge on that, but I'm definitely saying that he brought more recognition, I think, to the genre mainstream wise then what would have happened if he didn't put out Let's Dance? And it's one of those trade-offs that TJ, you've pointed out, you know, America and Britain trading musical styles back yep. and forth. Mm -hmm. on. Yep. Yeah. So now we're going to do something a little bit different. I don't think we've ever actually done this. We, we might've done this once or twice, but I will say. Oh, just, we're going to play Modern Love? We've never done that before. We're getting, we're getting there. Hang on. Okay. But because... I'm going to play a an interview that, oh boy. <laughs> that David <laughs> took yep. part in on MTV back in 1983. Uh, David appeared on MTV with Mark Goodman conducting the interview. And for those who don't know, Mark was one of the original VJs, I believe. Correct, yeah. Because at this point, I think... MTV is only three years old. It's a baby. Right. This so, is this is the this is uh, Mark Goodman. Uh, what JJ Martha Quinn. Oh, who was the others. who was the Wubba Wubba downtown Julie Brown? Julie Brown. Yeah, I think she was a, she was a little bit later. I don't think she was an original, but okay. So so MTV is still kind of a baby, but they have established themselves as you know the the first music channel and. What they were playing at the time, if you guys will recall, they were actually sort of, what's the word, pulling from Top of the Pops, everything that the British uh, had. Well, yeah, it wasn't originally. And the very, when they first started, yes, a lot of their, quote, videos were the, quote, videos that artists shot to have played on Top of the Pops and other music channels. That, you know, because when you're just starting, and there are some that, did them for promotional purposes and stuff that, you know, that would, they would get played at the odd hour on TV to literally to fill time, you know, yeah. between, you know, 
Barney Miller and a, a rerun of Mayberry RFD or something. Um, so they, they had this cache of videos that they were pulling from, and then artists started making them specifically to be aired on MTV. Yes, yes. And back in those days, they all had something in common. Cocaine? Well, that, but I think that's something that Mr. Bowie will be touching on in the interview. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play this interview. Now, this is just a small part of a larger interview that he did, which is, I think, about 17 to 19 minutes in its entirety. However, if we did that, all of you would turn it off. So I do suggest that you guys go, and if this is something that interests you is hearing his, you know, the full interview. But it there's is four minutes where he walks into their living room and craps on their carpet. <laughs> yeah, but there, but go on YouTube. There is a larger interview there with Mark Goodman. So I'm just going to play the four-minute version and uh, enjoy. I'd like to ask you something. I mean, so, you know, all right. Um, it, it occurred to me, having watched MTV over the last few months, um, that it's, it, it's, got, it's a solid enterprise with it and it's got a lot going for it. I'm just floored by the fact that there's so, many so few black artists featured on it. Why is that? I think that we're trying to move in that direction. We want to play artists that seem to be doing music that fits into what we want to play for MTV. There's th the company is thinking in terms of narrow casting. That's evident. Um, it's evident in the fact that the only few black artists that one does see are on about 2.30 in the morning or, in, or to around 6. Very few are featured predominant, no. predominantly during the day. No. That, uh, that's a I'll say that over the last couple of weeks these things have been changing, but it, it's, no, uh, it's a I, slow process. I know. It's, it's funny. I think people have different perceptions. When you wind up watching, let's say you watch an hour or two or even three a day, People somehow come away with different ideas about what we are doing. We don't have any kind of day parting for anything, mm. let alone a black artist day parted out of what, what would be, quote, prime time. Mm. We don't have that. Because one sees a lot on the, on the there's a, one black station on uh, television that I keep picking up. I'm not sure which station it's on. But there's a, there seem to be a lot of black artists making very good videos that I'm surprised aren't used on MTV. Well, of course, also we have to try and do what we think not only New York and Los Angeles will appreciate, but also uh, Poughkeepsie or Midwest, pick some town in the Midwest that will be scared to death by Prince, which we're playing, or a string of other black faces That's and black music. That's very interesting. Isn't that interesting? You know, we have, to, uh, we have to play the music that we think an entire country is going to like, and certainly we're a rock and roll station now. The question would be asked, well, should, uh, since we're in New York, should PLJ play, uh, you know, uh, the Isley Brothers? Well, you and I might say, yeah, because we have grown up in an era when the Isley Brothers mean something to me, and so do the Spinners, even way after the Isley Brothers. But what does it mean to a 17-year-old? Well, if you talk on the phones to these guys like I did when I was in radio, it's Well, I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what maybe the Isley Brothers or Marvin Gaye means to a black 17-year-old. Ah. And surely he's part of America as well. No question. No question. And that's why you're seeing those things. Do you not find that it's a frightening predicament to be in? Yeah, but less so here than in radio. And is it not, well, no, don't say, well, it's not me, it's them. Is it, no, is well, it, not, is it not possible that it's, it's, it should be a conviction of the station and of other radio stations, mm. to be fair? It, it, is, it does seem to be um, uh, rampant through American media. Um, is it, it, should it not be a challenge to try and make the media far more 
integrated in those in music, happening. especially of anything in musical terms. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think it's happening because white music and white musicians are now starting to play more than ever, what, uh, more than they have lately, let's say, in the last 10 years, yeah. what, what black artists have been into. Mm -hmm. And now, hopefully, the lines are going to start to blur. And when we play a band like ABC, yeah. well, there's, there's white and black kids who are enjoying it. And all of a sudden, well, it's, it's a little bit easier for a white kid to understand it. The fact is, quite frankly, I could even point you towards a letter in the new issue of The Record, yeah. that magazine, The Record, responding to an article by Dave Marsh that this, this kid just ranted about what he didn't want to see on MTV. Well, that's and his problem. And in no uncertain terms, well, what I'm saying, though, is that there's, as you say, there's certainly a, a lot of black kids and white kids who may want to see black music. Mm. There's a ton of them who are, it's not like it was in 67 where you say, yeah, I'm, I'm not into that, you know, but you are, yeah. Now it's, you're into that? I don't like you. And that's scary, and we, can, we can't just turn around and go, well, look, this is the right way. We can only teach, I think, a little bit at a time. Interesting. Okay, thank you very much. Does that make sense? Valid point? I understand your point of view. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> God! Oof. You oh God, it. that was oh God, I hurt for that man. That you was feel sad. it. God, just and the Woo. thing you can actually see now it doesn't really cut back to Mark Goodman, but you can actually see him with the shovel in his hand, kind of digging his own grave. The, the fact or, that it doesn't or, go back to Goodman or, or adjusting or adjusting the collar of his shirt like the guy in Scanners right before his head explodes. <laughs> this is this is where what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. <laughs> All you watch is David Bowie's reaction. You know, Mark is just in you can tremendous pain. This sweat, the the sweat that must have been on his brow at the time. Oh, just, God. I mean, and the thing is, where you you use Prince as an example. I'm sorry, you are talking to the man who brought androgyny to the forefront and you're saying well we can't play prince's music because what do kids in the midwest think of prince and you're talking to david but you're talking to ziggy stardust you're talking you're talking to the thin white come on man well there's a lot there's a lot going on there first of all <laughs> it's savage david as i said at the outset literally walks into mtv's house and craps on their living room rug he doesn't um, even, he doesn't even he, mark goodman doesn't even ask him a question David Bowie's first thing out of the gate is that question. It's like, it's just, oh, I've oh. noticed. <laughs> like, and it's not even really a question. He makes a statement, and then Mark reacts to it for about five minutes while David <laughs> occasionally just jumps in just long enough to disassemble whatever argument Mark's making. <laughs> and and, and I, in a way, I feel bad for Mark because I doubt he was making programming decisions. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's just, it's like, I just... I just introduced the video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm just here. But, okay. and, but, but you have to think that this is, uh, I wonder if this started to change uh, MTV's approach. That and the fact that we're on the doorstep of a couple of all-time landmark monumental albums by black artists about to drop, i.e. Thriller and Purple Rain and, and, and many other ones, to where they just, they, there's no way they could continue the policy of 
either not playing black artists at all or tucking them away at two in the morning or whatever they were doing. Um, and I've made, and I've pointed this out before to the point that one of the few videos they played in the early days by a black artist was by Herbie Hancock. And they mainly played it because Herbie's barely in it. Is that the anime? You his face, no. Yeah. You see Rocket. You see his, you know, they have all the animatronic stuff. Yeah. You see, you see his face on the TV screen in the background for like two or three seconds. And that's it. Yeah. But but and it would have gotten to a point where they would have been cutting off their nose to spite their own face if they decided, no, we're just not going to play Billie Jean. Well, the thing is, you know, you know what the first quote unquote rap song was that they ever played on MTV, correct? Rapture. It was Rapture. Blondie. It was by the band Blondie. Blondie. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, one quick little thing about that. You know, she mentions Fab Five Freddy in the... Um, Yes. In the song. And it looks like Fab Five Freddy in the video. It's not him. Yes, I know. That's actually not. But that's a common misconception that, well, yeah. look, Fab Five Freddy's in it. No, it's just a guy wearing sunglasses and a top. <laughs> Is, isn't it also the lady from The Waitresses who makes an appearance? Uh, she might have. I think she was in that. She, yeah. she might be. But uh, no, I learned that from Pop Up Video. And for those who don't know what Pop Up Video is, it was uh, maybe one of the greatest TV shows ever. It was gorgeous. But years later mtv doesn't even play music they they have like uh you know 15 and pregnant and uh i married my brother-in-law or whatever right and they just stopped playing music so and road rules 37 <laughs> oh Gross. the real world season 59 um <laughs> yeah to the point that they started mtv too to be a place, okay, well, this is where we're going to put our music videos. And they don't show music videos on there anymore either. Oh, then they made uh, MTV, they made another one, didn't they? Well, they put the VH1, VH1, VH1 classic. Well, they, 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 they uh, took that over. It's MTV classic now, which is, is VH1 classic, basically. It really didn't change. Do they play music but videos on it? They do. That's almost all they do. Excellent. So... On July 18th, 1983, he was on the cover of Time, which is pretty cool. Uh, the cover's also really neat. I'll try to post that on our socials if I remember. And it was with critic uh, Jake Cox devoting 4,500 words to praise the album, uh, declaring Bowie to be music's most exquisite artifact. He's like you're a old. fancy person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, you call somebody an artifact, you're pretty much calling them old at that point. But Yeah, yeah. but he's an exquisite artifact. And he's still creating incredible music he's not that old at this point no this I mean... is 83 <laughs> uh then there was the 1983 serious moonlight tour which acquired its names from a line in the lyrics from let's dance uh this tour would be bigger and better than anything he had done before and his longest outing yet he would hit up new york dallas do warm-ups in belgium germany and france head to california then back to london and Birmingham, hitting up Canada and Japan, and by November he'd be playing Australia, New Zealand, and then would hit Singapore, Thailand, just before Christmas. Jeez. So light traveling. Good <laughs> thing that he's flying now, because that would be really hard to do all that by boat. Mm, it'd be hard to pull yeah. that off by train. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he couldn't extend it anymore because he insisted that he wanted to get back to writing in 1984. But this is by far one of his most ambitious tours to date. He did 96 shows in 15 countries, playing for more than two and a half million people around the world. Jeez. So after this, there persists an impression that it was all downhill for Bowie from then on. 
his classic hits, you know, were the songs that were all behind him. Like people didn't think he could go any farther. And there would be a handful of albums, three that would make it to number one, which was Black Tie, White Noise, and then Black Star, which was a juggernaut. Pretty big gap there, but no? because big, yeah. Quite, that's quite a, a ways from then. But if you'll notice, it's about the same time that he was away from Tony. Hmm. Like, that's roughly 22-ish years when they, come back, yeah. when they come back together. There was a video with Mick Jagger, and that was Dancing in the Street, which is one of the most ridiculous music videos that I have ever seen in my entire <laughs> life, save for the Bloodhound Gang's Bad Touch. <laughs> And if you know anything about that music video, it's got people dressed like monkeys. Ridiculous for different reasons. It's ridiculous for different reasons. There was a moment at, at Live Aid, and we'll talk about that. That was a concert. In a little bit. Yeah, uh, it's it's the one that if I were able to travel back in time with no consequences, I would probably go to Live Aid. But although there is the Queen at Wembley 1986, which I feel like I would have wanted to be a part of that. So anyway, there's a film that's probably best forgotten, which was Absolute Beginners. And then he did the Glass Spider tour. And there was the Fond Farewell tour, which was a reality tour, which was cut short by medical emergencies. And then after that, there's pretty much a whole decade of nothing at all. (laughs) But that is just the perception from the outside. Because the final 30 years of his life were, in a way, his most creative and most personally fulfilling of David's life, according to Leslie Ann Jones, the biographer who wrote Hero. And the more I read this book, the more I realize that she has had a lot of interactions with Bowie Mm. on a very personal level. So I do suggest that if you guys really want like the full-blown story of David Bowie, Hero is probably one of the best books that I read this entire uh, series about David Bowie. Okay. Tonight may have been a UK number one hit album because it came on the hills of such a massive and successful tour, but it was not well received by critics or David himself, who (laughs) would later remark that he had kicked himself for the LP because he didn't play any instruments on the album and there was a lot of input by Icky Pop, which in the past hasn't really been a bad thing, (laughs) but I think David wasn't as happy with the process that happened. It was widely criticized as David's attempt to kind of woo his audience that he had gotten because of Let's Dance and the Serious Moonlight Tour. That produced three singles. Tonight features the vocals by, does anybody know who does her vocals? Tina Turner. No kidding. Wow. Loving the Alien was the showpiece. David had demoed it in Montreux, recording it with the rest of the album in Quebec and released it in May 1985. The song arose out of a negative feeling about organized religion generated by conspiracy theory literature that he read but didn't actually fully understand because he had always kind of been a sucker for propaganda and scandals. So that's just a little piece on tonight and loving the alien. So let's talk about Live Aid. Yeah! Yay! Concert. People played it. Yes. And <laughs> one day I would like to do just a special on Live Aid where we talk about and, and, Collins is. And really, I was going to say, really focus on the, the Dynamo who was able to perform both in London and Philadelphia. Yes, the only performer to do both stages. To do both. To appear on both stages. And, and, then get, and then get thrown under the bus by Led Zeppelin. But that's not Right, a... and then have Led Zeppelin say that he sucked and ruined his <laughs> <Yeah>. ass. <laughs> well, by the way, you know that uh, Queen actually paid twice at Live Aid as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm, but not on both stages. And they didn't yeah, have but to... not on two continents. Not, not on two continents, so that was just Phil. Sorry. 
No, well, Phil Collins is stupid, and I hope he loses all his hair. He already did. Fine. Oh, hey, little light on, little light on one of those. Yeah, you got to go back to like 1982 to throw that one in the pot. <laughs> I'll do it. I will build a time machine so I can make fun of Phil Collins' hair. I would rage build a time machine just so I could just go back and. I just have this feeling that for some reason, if you actually met Phil Collins, you'd probably really get along with him. I don't know. And it would be really funny. I doubt it. Come on, Phil. Give me a call. Let's chat. David Bowie's performance at Live Aid kind of flies under the radar, you know, on account of something else happened. Queen. Queen. Yeah. But it still needs to be celebrated. The historic Live Aid concert was a benefit gig arranged by Bob Geldof at Boomtown Rats. And it was about raising awareness about worsening famine in Ethiopia. The charity actually still provides help for those affected by poverty in third world countries. So it's still doing good even now. Uh, The event was largely known as the Global Jukebox, (laughs) as on the 13th of July, 1985. The concert was held simultaneously at Wembley Stadium in London and JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, with attendees at 72,000 and 100,000 people, respectively. But apparently, it was seen by over a billion people across the world. Like, it was beamed everywhere. And there are actually other, and I didn't realize this, there are other satellite things happening that day, too. Like, in Japan, they were doing other things. And uh, it was it was not just those two places that were like, let's get together and do this. It's so, the first I mean, concert on that scope. Yeah. Yeah, I, and it's, you also have to understand that now that wouldn't seem like that big or special of an of an occasion yeah there's no internet at this point right yeah yeah so hey it was being beamed everywhere so that's not a thing that happened all the time correct now you can just do it like at any point you can just have a zoom in call and the bare naked ladies remember watch the bare naked ladies play their music so bowie had originally had a vision for his set but because of the tech that went into it and he had uh, kind of had to scrap the idea. What he wanted to do was duet with Mick Jagger on Dancing in the Street, but it was planned to link the two up, Bowie and Jagger. And Bowie was in London. Jagger was actually at JFK. So they wanted to do a duet, but because of the tech at the time, they, they couldn't actually get them synced up properly. So there would be a significant video delay beforehand. And, that- and so they had to record the studio version. And just cover that instead. Isn't one of the great rumors that they had already synced up? You know what I'm saying? Well, Angie said that she walked in on the two of them, you know, looking very relaxed. Yes. I've seen varying versions of that story, even from her, though. Yeah. They they, They were naked in bed and had just had sex to, no, well, they were just sleeping in the same bed to, that's, that's one that's kind of that's that's kind of changed over time and depends on what account you're reading of it and all that kind of stuff but and and to this i say did mick jagger make good music yeah okay did david bowie make good music Mm -hmm. then who cares if they slept together everybody and you know (laughs) the world you included yeah Yeah. so anyway that show actually marked david's first performance in 18 months because he had opted against touring for the tonight record the previous year and he he was ready to be back with a bang so so he had played but well but now then if you go back just far enough probably then if it, if, we're, if it had been a year and a half since he had played 
so you're talking it would have been sometime in 80, late 83, then one of the last th- things he would have done would have been a big bang, big festival, the Us Festival. Well, because he, he, he closed the, I think, the either the alternative or the rock day at, um, or new wave or whatever, or whatever the hell they call it then, uh, day at the Us Festival, hmm. which well, was it's, it's several hundred thousand people were at that one. It's more specifically that he, the last thing he did with a bang that was on a global scale was under pressure, really, because he had tried to kind of wrangle in that goodwill that he had from Let's Dance, and it really wasn't working to his advantage. Well, well, and then, then just to tie this back to a series we did earlier in the year, he played the Us Festival, which was a multi-day event. I think it was held in 82 and then a second one in 83. Um, Van Halen very famously had a set a Guinness world record for the uh, highest sum paid to one band for a single performance at the time. It was a million and a half dollars to play the Us Festival. The way their contract was written, it had to be guaranteed that they got paid more than anybody else did that performed that the, at the entire festival. So Bowie had a sum that was close to what Van Halen got. And then they compensated David for, he allowed them to use some equipment or some speakers. There was something that they paid him for the use of his equipment that put him just slightly over what Van Halen made. So then Van Halen said, Hey, yeah, we have to make more. And they had to write Van Halen a check for like $500 or something (laughs) to make sure that. So actually it was like 1.5 million and $500 or something ridiculous like that. Well, going back to uh, Live Aid. What did he do at Live Aid? I, I, honestly, I'm sitting here trying to remember his set. and it's... That's, that's the problem is like, he, he, I mean, like every subsequent person was smashed by Queen. Like mm-hmm. that's, Queen is what you remember. And that's not me being biased. That is. No, no, that's, pretty, no, that's, pre- yes, that's, pre- that's pretty well what happened. Yes. That's, that's not Re- just me like loving Queen to the point that's where I'm like willing. Pretty, to, like, pretty well off. readily acknowledged by everybody who saw it and performed in it. Yes. So he did a four song set of the highest caliber and uh, he was accompanied by his bright new young band, which featured Thomas Dolby on keyboards. Yes. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. So they opted to open their set with Station to Station TVC 15 before delivering a rousing rendition of Rebel Rebel Modern Love and wrapped it up in perfect fashion with an iconic performance of Heroes. The short set was arguably a high watermark for David Bowie in that decade, who would go on to hit the road again for his Mammoth Glass Spider tour, which was largely hit or miss. So this this, uh, Live Aid performance was considered a high mark for David in the 80s. So we're going to play a little game called Dealer's Choice. From Live Aid, would you guys like to hear Rebel Rebel or Modern Love? Oh, gosh. That's, ooh, impossible ask there. Love Rebel Rebel. Um, and I love Modern Love, too. Will, Will have you a preference? Uh, I, again, this is a very difficult... I'm, I'm going to give the slight edge to Modern Love. So this is we're playing the the we're playing the live live aid version yes we are going to play the live live aid version of now, i do have one question who played guitar for him then that is a good question because i'm it probably wasn't stevie no no 
So what do you eh, think? Modern, modern love anyway. I don't care. Modern love. All right. Here we go. So modern love. Modern love. I know when to go out. I know when to stay in. Get things done. like Bowie went on in the evening yeah but just trying to figure out like because when queen did it it was the i think morning for america and it was drive time for afternoon yeah Yeah. there's like that significant time difference which gave them that perfect slot 
whereas kind of everybody else sort of just let the chips fall where they may kind of thing so uh but yeah is, it, is the song with, over yeah song's yeah. over oh i'm sorry oh shit i'm sorry I didn't <laughs> yeah no it's okay we're just we're just talking we're just riffing man so uh we're rapping we're rapping we're, we're getting back into our groove it's been two whole weeks we've forgotten how to talk to humans <laughs> so um even with the success of live aid david could not forget his half-brother terry and david wasn't the only one who had actually neglected terry peggy their mother went to see him in 1984 which was terry's 47th birthday and it was her first visit to the asylum in more than seven months and she told terry that david was in the process of buying her a new flat now you can only imagine what terry was thinking because his half-brother is david bowie some jet setter love the world over rich famous brother why wasn't he helping him now this is all speculation but but you just you wonder what's going on in terry's head because it made it seem like in all the things that i read that he was truly neglected like family stopped seeing him no one would visit him and it was just a sad state and the last family member to see him alive was his aunt pat his mother's youngest sister 10 days or so before christmas which we know at that time it's challenging enough for most people and so it's got to be really hard for people whose family kind of shies away from them and so uh at the time terry had, had a fa failed marriage behind him and there was no family member that was willing to support him so uh, you can only imagine how he was feeling so the day after boxing day he walked out of cane hill made his way to the south railway station and jumped down on the tracks he must have lost his nerve when he heard the train approaching because he somehow managed to like shrink within the rails and the train passed over him. So it did. Oh, wow. Yikes. He was found shortly after by a British rail worker and returned to Cane Hill. And this wasn't his first suicide attempt. We actually talked about a little earlier how he tried to hurl himself through a window oh in 1982 and that messed up his leg and arm. But there might have been other unreported instances where he attempted suicide. A week after his long absent brother's 38th birthday on January the 16th, 1985, Terry escaped again. He went back down to the yard rail and... Now, is he, just to, for, so I know for certain here, he is like checking himself out and leaving or he is breaking out and escaping? I think he's escaping. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I think he's escaping. Okay. I'm not really certain because this would be two escapes. Which seems like you would have garnered more security or they would have made yeah. kept a little closer watch on you. But I, I mean, I don't know. But, but Yeah, and, and I don't think we as Americans have a good handle on the, the system of institutionalization because in the 80s, Reagan opened up the doors to all the institutions and just let everyone out. There's not really a, an effective state. Yeah. Willow it's yeah. Like Willowbrook, you know, we just don't have that kind of idea of, you know, my idea of what it would have been like there then is that you're not getting out. That, that would be my thought yeah. as well, especially since he had tried to commit suicide, especially since, you know, he made an attempt earlier in the same manner wow. you would think that they would have more wow. eyes on him because it's not like he 
hasn't exhibited signs of schizophrenia and made attempts on his life before. Mm. So it is, I, I feel like he couldn't just check himself out. I feel like he is escaping, but please, if you guys do know what happened or do understand what happened with the system, please let us know. I'm really excited. I'm really interested in seeing this because I really couldn't find a whole heck of a lot about this instant. So please email us. I will give all of our socials out at the end. I would love to know what your thoughts are. So he got out again, went back to the rail yard, and then got down in front of an oncoming Little Hampton to London Express train and was killed. The only family members at his funeral were his mother and his aunt, Pat, who did not exchange a word. And there was no David. He didn't go? He did not go. Wow. Now, this is going to be a sticking point for a long time because he said that he decided that his presence at Terry's funeral would turn it into a media circus and he stayed away. But he did send a basket of flowers along with a note containing a line from the from the film Blade Runner. You've seen more things than we can imagine, but all of these moments will be lost like tears washed away by the rain. And most of us are fortunate that our family tragedies don't become the sport of tabloids, but God bless, I hate, I hate the paparazzi so much for so many reasons. But the son attacked Bowie for his alleged mistreatment of his brother and calling them out for ignoring him and not attending his funeral, which like I I can I can partially understand why it's also, not. it's also a family matter that whoever's writing those stories really doesn't have any insight to. Yeah. Yeah, no. So it's like, well, he he abandoned his brother and didn't go to his funeral and he didn't it's like, well, but how do you know why he did that? Or you know what I'm saying? Like you're trying to, to present some sort of insight into an intimate family family situation that you really don't know what you're talking about. So Yeah, and they're lambasting him. They're so, uh, him. Yeah. But they don't know anything about the situation. They don't, they know nothing about this. And they're only interested in like half truths and making these people feel terrible, like pushing them to things. This is why I don't like the paparazzi. You know, we saw for some reason my YouTube has been like, you want to watch stuff on Princess Diana, don't you? And I'm like, well, yes, I do. And to this day, I'm still mad at the paparazzi because I feel like they played a massive part in her death. And you know how I felt when Princess Di passed away. Isn't that the subject matter behind Candle in the Wind? Uh, the second the, I mean, yeah, no, the first one was Marilyn Monroe. First but was Marilyn I still think it applies. You have yeah. that media circus, you know, affecting somebody like that. Yeah. And their family. It's a fact that Terry was essential to Bowie's development. He helped David Jones turn into David Bowie, having introduced his brother to everything from Buddhism to jazz and... The period that David and Terry really had a lot of contact was the Haddon Hall days in 1970-71. And that was a quantum leap in David Bowie's songwriting, where he would introduce himself to guests as Terry's brother and then go off and write Quicksand and Life on Mars. There was Cane Hill on the cover of The Man Who Sold the World. And there were songs, All the Man Men, After All, Five Years, The Man Who Sold the World, and the Buley brothers. So it's not like David completely cut Terry out of his life. Right. There were elements of Terry in, in a lot of the influential stuff that he did in the beginning. I think what it is, is it's a problem of time and fear. 
and I'm, I'm, this is all speculation. And this is my opinion that does not reflect, you know, the thoughts of the other two hosts. But I do think that a lot of times, if you have someone in your family with something, you're afraid that you might have it as well. Yeah. You know, so with David, there was a string of schizophrenia and he feared that if he spent an, a lot of time with Terry, maybe he would accelerate his own tendencies of schizophrenia. So I think that we fear that even though it's not quote unquote contagious, it was still something that he was scared of. So you distance yourself, but he still gave those elements of his brother into his music. He put those elements of his brother into his music as an homage. So um, he said that I think I unconsciously exaggerated his importance I have invented this hero worship to discharge my guilt and failure, and I set myself free of my own hangups. Jump, they say, was released eight years after Terry's death. It was semi-based on my impressions of my stepbrother, Bowie told the M the NME, but Jump was no eulogy because it was written well after the Bule brothers. And we're going to listen to that right now. So in honor of Terry... We are going to play David's eulogy to his brother, and that is the Bule Brothers. And so the story goes, they wore the clothes, they said the things to make it seem improbable. The will of a lie like the hope it was. And the good men tomorrow had their feet in the wallow And their heads are brawn when eyes are shorn And how they bought their positions with saccharine and trust And the world was asleep to our latent fuss Sang the swirl through the streets like the crust of the sun of you, dear brothers. In our wings that bark, flashing teeth of brass, standing tall in the dark. On we were gone, hanging out with your twelve men. We were so turned on. Your lack of conclusion. Now, I was stolen, he was whacked, so he could scream and still relax. Unbelievable. And we frightened the small children away. And our talk was old and dust would flow through our veins And lo, it was midnight back at the kitchen door Like the grim face on the cathedral floor The solid book we wrote cannot be found today And it was stalking time for the moon boys, the Bewley brothers with our backs on the arch And if the devil may be here But he can't sing about that Oh, and we were gone 
And now the dress is hung, the ticket pawned, the factor max that proved the fact is melted down. Woven on the edging of my pillow. And my brother lays upon the rocks, he could be dead, he could be not, he could be you. He's chameleon, comedian, Corinthian and caricature. Shooting up high in the sky, beauty brothers. In the feeble in the bed, beauty brothers. Okay, so that was the Beulay Brothers. And for those who are wondering, it was on the Hunky Dory album. So it wasn't so much a real-time eulogy for his brother since his brother was still alive, but it's very much a, that that song is very much a send-off to his brother. So Jump They Say is a much more excitable song. And it's not, it's not exactly what you would consider a reverent song. What's the best way to put I'm at a loss. I'm, you know what? I'm going to just, I'm not going to play the whole song. What is this? But I'm going to play Jump They Say you, so you can understand the difference. Sounds like a a late 80s dance hit by Erasure. Huh. It's actually, I think, I think Jump They Say is from 91, 91 or 92. We still have that bleed over from the 80s at that point. Yeah. So you can see why I would play that one for his brother as opposed to Jump They Say because it is a, from the ground up, it's a foundationally different song. Mm. So the more 
he tried to distance himself from his brother's suicide, the more that he was confronted with the fragility and the ultimate futility of life. Uh, he had restored his life. Okay. And there are, can you see the, the, the ferocity at which I'm doing bunny ears? <laughs> right. Ah, using Coco's help, of course. Uh, he was chain smoking, but he could quit anytime he wanted. He was still using cocaine, but only recreationally. It's the 80s. And he was drinking, but only socially. He just happened to be very social. It's the 80s. So. I only drink. Yes. I only smoke when I drink. Of course, I'm a binge drinking alcoholic. So I smoke five packs <laughs> a day. Yeah. But then I say this with all seriousness. He had actually forged a solid and mutually supportive relationship with his son, Duncan. And they would spend as much time as possible together. So he was in command professionally. His focus was to make the kind of music that he wanted as opposed to what the public wanted. And we have uh, pretty much by now passed his biggest pop hits. Those are now behind him. Yes. He, yes. he continues to make fantastic and very vital music, but that's maybe not that's palatable to radio and to a bigger audience. Well, he still has one small thing up his sleeve during the decade of the 80s and that is with a little movie called labyrinth yes yeah Woo. for those who don't know labyrinth is a 1986 musical fantasy directed by jen henson with george lucas as the executive producer and it revolves around uh everyone's sexual awakening <laughs> jennifer connelly and uh i will be the first to say she was very instrumental in my sexual awakening <laughs> yeah David Bowie was mine. This was and, I was, and if never mind, I'm not gonna say what I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> some some things are best left unsaid. I, I had a huge crush on Jennifer Connelly. Yes, well, who? I mean, who didn't? Exactly. I mean, I had I, a crush on. I'm fine. You know what? I'm just gonna. You know what? I'm just gonna say it. And if and if that wasn't part of your sexual awakening, then then perhaps when you saw her in Requiem for a Dream, that was. <laughs> that made yeah. yeah. Wow. Holy crap! Jeez. Woo. So. Um, or for that matter, or for that matter, the Roy Orbison I Drove All Night video. I did not see that. You've never seen her and, um, is it, uh, what's his name? It's the guy from 90210. Um, Luke Perry? Maybe. Jason no, uh, no, the other one. Jason Priestley. Priestley, yeah. It's, it's the, whole, the whole video is Jennifer Connelly and Jason Priestley just going at it. Huh. Just, just in the desert, in a bedroom, by a babbling brook. On the side of the road, just just them, just just having at it. Have you ever met a quiet brook, or do they all just babble? They're all they're all a little mouthy, <laughs> a little, or the or for that matter. <laughs> remember, I, at home, I think Will just I could actually hear the sound of his eyeballs rolling into the back of his head. <laughs> or, uh, or Will, do you remember uh, you remember Jennifer from The Rocketeer? Oh, yes, I do. You didn't even know that Rocketeer existed until I showed it to you. Incorrect. I had seen it before. Remember I said Timothy Dalton was a great villain. You said that because of Hot Fuzz. No, I said that I introduced the Rocketeer. No, I introduced <laughs> Speaking of Hot Fuzz. This is the... <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Anyway, let's get back to David Bowie's <laughs> How are you doing, Jennifer? Let's have award nominee now, isn't she? Okay. Everyone just rate it in. We're stopping talking about Jennifer Connolly. She's not a singer and she's not dead. Shut we... up. We're talking about David <laughs> Bowie. Anyway, principal oh. photography. Oh, and if you guys don't know, David Bowie played Jareth the Goblin King. So hot. Uh anyway, I will say 
that if I am not on some government list after this episode, the government is not doing their job (laughs) because I actually had to Google David Bowie's area several times and there are copious amounts of there's no shortage of material yeah there is (laughs) (laughs) actually there probably was that's why i look so big anyway i don't think it was a cod piece i just think it was a no shortage of material yeah yeah Yeah, he had no shortage of material allegedly would you say that uh, ld any seat with david bowie is the hot seat (laughs) Mm -hmm. like mammoth oz (laughs) uh anyway principal did you say mammoth what Mammoth Oz. Doctor Oz. Doctor Oz. I thought you said mammoth. You're talking about Dave's laugh, and then you're talking about something being mammoth. I'm like, well, I mean, that's the rumor. I mean, (laughs) I'm gonna have to edit this later, and I'm I'm sure sure sorry, but it's been a while, and anyway, we haven't done this in a while, and I've I've forgotten how to behave. (laughs) Okay, so looping back to what we were talking about, which was not David Bowie's penis. Principal photography began on April 15th, 1985 at the L Street Studios. Labyrinth took five months to film and it was a complicated shoot because it had a ton of puppets, animatronics, everything that that, that was involved. And um, in the making of the documentary Inside the Labyrinth, Henson stated that although the creature shop had been building the puppets and the characters required for around a year and a half, everything came together in the last couple of weeks. So... There were there was that pressure of getting everything together in time. Uh, Henson noted that even if you have the characters together, the puppeteers start working with them, and you find problems that they have to figure out, and what's going uh, to me to to need changes. Well, you also have like eight people operating one puppet. Well, that's yeah. how that's why it was such an issue. Like you have something like Hoggle, where they all have to basically play their own version of a video game to get their eyes to blink at the same time and the hand motions to go. And so like, you have to work all this stuff out. And that's so one character. That's yeah. one character, but literally everything else has to come together as well, because you have to remember the helping hands thing. You had the doorknobs. You got full. Every goblin. Every <laughs> goblin. You've got the full, you have Ludo, which is like the, you, you get, and you're dealing with an actual dog. I think that the book about the production design said there there were designs, independent designs for like 150 goblins or something just insane. It's crazy. Yeah. So um, in the early stages of filming, both Connolly and Bowie found it really difficult to interact naturally with the puppets. And Bowie said that I had some initial problems with Hoggle and the rest because for one thing, uh, what they don't say is coming from their mouths, but it's coming from the set below you or behind you. Hmm. And Connolly remarked that it was a bit strange working with puppets, but I think both Dave and I got over that and just looked at the challenge of working with the puppets. And by the end of the film, it wasn't challenging anymore. It's just that they had settled into their characters and learned how to interact with the puppets. Hmm. I can imagine it would have been difficult, but I mean, like, man, you're working with Jennifer Connolly, David Bowie, and the Muppets. You work with Jim Henson. Which is awesome. You work with Jim freaking Henson. So there were a couple people that were considered for the role of Jareth, the Goblin King. One of them was Freddie Mercury. That's right. I, that was the one I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say someone else. But Rod Stewart was also considered. And so was Mick Jagger. I was going to say Michael Jackson. Was it uh, Michael Jackson was a big one. Michael Jackson was a big one. But uh, in hindsight, it's probably better that David Bowie got it. Bowie's the best choice. You know, but it's so iconic. Like, you can't imagine, the casting was so perfect that you can't imagine anybody else other than David Bowie in that role. So, 
a new behind the scenes book marking 30th anniversary revealed that his casting suggestion was not just Michael Jackson, not just Freddie Mercury, not just Rod Stewart, but they also looked at Prince and Sting as well. Interesting. Yeah. Because Sting already had some credits under his belt by this point. Yeah. There are new handwritten notes that were found by the Henson estate that were based on Labyrinth and that you can see these online. It's really interesting. And it's now in the ultimate visual history show that, you know, Roger Daltrey, Ted Nugent, and David Lee Roth were also Diamond Dave. Diamond Dave really was one of the original casting choices for Henson. For Jareth? Yeah. Diamond, Diamond Dave wow. and the Nuge? Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, the thing is that the, the, the actual character of Jareth had always been conceived as a rocker. Okay. Like, look at the cult of personality. Uh, the fact that, you know, when he has the, 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 when he's juggling the balls, like it's all about, he has, you know, he's got that showmanship with the, the juggler and the, the outfit was always the concept, the, the concept for the outfit, the, the cult of personality, everything that goes into what Jareth is, mm -hmm. is based on rockers. Sure. So it makes yeah. sense that, that. And, and, you know, if you think about it very sadly, um, Jim Henson didn't live way much longer than this movie came out. No, no. And he only had he he very 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 sadly uh, only had a couple of years left at that point. So, yeah, I actually remember crying because um, Sesame Street did such an incredible job of explaining death to you and explaining how Jim Henson died. And I just remember how, the care that they took with teaching people how. Well, you know, when Mr. Hooper died, they did a great job mm -hmm. of that as well. But yes. then they also did the job of explaining what they were. So if you can find that, that's such a beautiful piece of television history when they all come to terms, when the Muppets all come to terms with the death of Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. A little bit more, I guess this is a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. So uh, Sarah's baby brother, Toby, who is, uh, is portrayed by Toby Froud, he is the son of Brian Froud, who is the man who designed both the worlds and the creatures of Labyrinth. And as an adult, Toby didn't stick with acting. Instead, he actually became a puppeteer working on movies like Paranorman and the Box Trolls. And I think later on, he actually became the head designer for The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. Yeah, I mean, Brian Froud was kind of an employee number two guy for Henson. So if his son taking up that mantle and again doing the highly acclaimed but unfortunately canceled Dark Crystal series was was really interesting. Yeah, so remember what I was saying about Jim Henson hiring a rock star to play the, the king? Yeah. And there's a making of featurette on the Blu-ray, which is conceptual designer Brian going into detail about saying, I gave him a swagger stick. It has a crystal <laughs> ball. If you look at it, it's a microphone. There are a lot of subtleties going on there. And he's supposed to be a young girl's dream of a pop star. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only low-key reference the filmmaker snuck in. Brian went on to say that they got into a lot of trouble about maybe how tight his pants might have been. <laughs> but that was deliberate. That was deliberate. His pants were always meant to be that tight. Now, there is a, an interesting debate that's going on online about whether or not David Bowie was actually wearing a cod piece or not. I will always think that he is 
but there are uh, people that have done fashion designing their whole lives that say maybe he wasn't. So I want to see what your process is to try to figure that out. Like, what exactly did you research to <laughs> figure out to come to that conclusion? And uh, here's something that, that Mr. Will the Thrill might not have known, mm-hmm. but it's one of his favorite things in the world. Mm-hmm. The Lord of the Rings could have looked a lot different because early on, David Bowie was actually considered for Gandalf. You told me that. And again, speaking of iconic castings, I don't think you could replace Sir Ian McKellen. I don't think you can either. Um, But that's an interesting choice. Yeah. He had the opportunity to be in Lord of the Rings. The studio was totally against it because in the past, he had already played such an iconic character which I think sucks because I would have really liked to have seen him as either Gandalf or Elrond. Elrond would have been perfect. Absolutely perfect. I could see that seamless change Is that right there. that Hugo Weaving? That's Hugo Weaving's role. And look, Hugo Weaving did a great job, but I could see Bowie easily going into that role. Hugh, yeah. Hugo Weaving constantly looks like his forehead is attempting to take over the entirety <laughs> of his head. And it's what is his niece. We, we really enjoy her work. Um, Samara Weaving. Yes, yeah, Samara Weaving's awesome, dude. <laughs> Samara Weaving is such a good... Yeah, babysitter and babysitter killer Bill B Ted. and Bill and Ted. And she's so good. Guns Akimbo. Guns Akimbo, yes. If you guys haven't seen Guns Akimbo, please watch that. That's such a, <laughs> such a stupid, fun movie. So you guys know Magic Dance, yes? Yes, we do. If you remember the Magic Dance musical number, you know that it opens with dialogue which is an exchange between Jareth and the goblins. He starts off by saying, you remind me of a babe. And is asked, what babe? The babe with the power. The power of voodoo. Now, for most of us, that passed by without a lot of thought. But if you are a hardcore cinephile, you know that this is a direct reference to another film several decades prior. It's from a movie called The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, and it's a 1947 screwball comedy starring Cary Grant and Shirley Temple. And in one scene, the two have a snappy back and forth. And I'm just actually just going to play it for you now because it's really cute. Now, greetings, Yuki Doogie. Dickie. Ready, Boot? Let's scoot. Wait. Wait. Hey, you remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo? You do. Do what? You remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What Good power? morning. Power hmm? Greetings, greetings. Are you out of your mind? Uh, what? What? What are you trying to do? So that's just a fun little sidebar for anybody who is a cinephile and uh, or just wants some sort of information for your next trivia game. So now I'm going to play the song that literally everyone is here for. You remind me as a babe, babe with the power. Dance, magic, dance, dance, magic, dance. 
fun that is such a good song i love it mm. okay so labyrinth that this might be new to some people but labyrinth opened up at number eight and um it placed behind the karate kid part two back to school legal eagles ruthless people running scared top gun and fear fuelers day off <laughs> and then it dropped to number 13 it made what is it 12 million dollars of its 25 million dollar budget making mm. labyrinth a massive bomb yes wow. really it That's was crazy. a it bombed at the box i would i would not have thought that yeah same here yeah well it's such an iconic thing but remember what has to come which is home video mm. and that's where it became the cult classic that it is now. Well, there are there are a lot of movies and songs and things and TV shows that people think were really popular and big hits, and they weren't. They attained a status later on. They gained a cult following, became lucrative on home video or, or whatever, but that weren't hits. Like, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time was a mammoth bomb when it was in theaters. Which was? office space 
Oh yeah. oh yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, like yeah. no money. Like nobody saw that when it was in movie theaters. And, the and then movie, just, just it just slowly it. built an audience over time on like the Comedy Channel airing at two in the morning. <laughs> but Star Trek only had two seasons. Mm-hmm. The original. Yeah, the original only had two seasons. And look at something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm, massive bomb. Huge bomb at the theater. But it's now the the film that has continuously run in theaters the longest because it's run for over 40 years in a theater that has and has grossed hundreds of millions of dollars it's just taken it 40 something years to get there and had a massive cult following Mm -hmm. made made just about everyone uh who was involved in it uh stars in their own right and it yeah but that's the same thing that happened with labyrinth think about think about that like we just spent 45 minutes talking about Jennifer Connelly. And uh, that's just, it took time to build up that cult following. So he spent his 40th birthday skiing in Switzerland with his son and relaxing. And in March of 1987, he was up to his neck in press and promotions for the Glass Spider Tour. Uh, in April came the album that that outing was based on. And it was written and recorded in Lusain and Montreux. It was Never Let Me Down. He wrote the title track for Coco, a loving tribute to the woman who would always be there for him and has indeed never once let him down. If you remember from, I think it was our last episode, like she would take mirrors and make sure he was still breathing. It's crazy. And like make sure he was moving and stuff like that. So kept him alive. She yeah. kept him alive. Uh, she thought it was better than a wedding ring. And uh, this was not, this whole thing was not considered a, a great movement for him. It was not one of his best in the long run. The show was confusing to say the least. Uh, between the end of May and the last day of November, it was seen by 6 million fans over 86 shows. Many found it unsatisfying. The tour itself was cursed with mishaps. There were fan and crew member deaths and even a lawsuit, and one woman accused David Bowie of having infected her with AIDS. Oh, Just for the record, wow. he did not. Uh, on a fun note, the show was choreographed by Tony Basil. Hey! Basil, hey, all right. Never Let Me Down, ironically, was one of Bowie's biggest letdowns. <laughs> the track Shining Star, Making My Love, is stiff and static, and it's even marred further by a rap verse from the actor Mickey Rourke, who spits rhymes about Leon Trotsky what? and Adolf Hitler. Who, who thought oh that was a good idea? What? what? Someone's like, we need a rap track. Okay, you're already going into dangerous territory. Who's going to do it? Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. Oh, yeah, yeah. Noted early gangster rap star, Mickey Rourke. Did you guys just miss the part about Leon Trotsky and Adolf Hitler? He was rapping about them, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, okay. Well, there was a weird time when... um. Rap was popular, but it was almost like a, um, about this time, but it was almost seen as sort of a fad. And so you had lots of people doing really sticky, weird, like novelty rap stuff. Like you remember the Rappin' Duke? The Rappin' Duke is probably the height of dumb novelty rap. It's somebody doing an impression of John Wayne rapping. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty yeah, ridiculous. There's so, so much terrible music out there. <laughs> Oh, my God. The 80s were a weird time, man. They were weird. 
for all of Bowie's self-deprecation, Never Let Me Down actually marked an upward tick in creativity. The artist had more songwriting credits on that album than he did of any of his two previous albums, 1983's Let's Dance and 1984's Tonight. And for the first time since 1980's Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, the album that contained Ashes to Ashes, he does more than just sing. He contributes guitar, harmonica, and keyboards to the recording closer to the hands-on process that he had in the 1970s when I think arguably we can say that that was one of his most creative times, especially with the advent of Ziggy Stardust. So, ready for a fun fact? Fun fact! Fun fact! Peter Frampton revealed that David Bowie once saved his life in 1987 after the cabin of his private plane was filled with smoke after takeoff. Wait, what? Which, welcome to my nightmare, (laughs) kids. At the time of the incident, Frampton, who originally met Bowie at school, you know, that they had been friends, and uh, Peter's father had even been David's, one of David's teachers. Uh, he was attempting to stage a major career comeback following the international success in the 70s with his release of Frampton Comes Alive, which sold over 8 million copies in the U.S. alone. Bowie enlisted his old friend to play on his 1987 album, Never Let Me Down, as well as accompanying him on the Glass Spider tour, which came to Slane Castle on the 11th of July, 1987. According to the Mirror, Frampton revealed in an extract from his upcoming memoir that the pair were sitting in a private plane awaiting takeoff during the tour when Bowie noticed that the cabin was filled with smoke. David stands up and goes, smoke, smoke, Frampton writes. So the pilot stops and the flight attendant pulls up the back stairway down. David literally lifted me out of his seat and carried me down the chute. I will never forget that. He could have ran out, but he wanted to make sure I was okay. And that's the kind of person that he was in general. He was a lovely man. <laughs> yeah, and, and also really at that point was doing frampton quite a favor to have him play on the his record and to, to tour with him because you know frampton had frampton comes alive and he's the biggest thing that there is and then there's the ill-fated uh movie with him and the bgs and his yeah. career yeah. completely tanked yeah totally tanked. he was yep. down and out and dave kind of gave him a lift back up onto the horse there at that point and and then also t- took him out of a smoke-filled um airplane cabin so <laughs> Yeah. Just as a no, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to be rescued. Although, like, you guys know, that's my personal nightmare. But it was so interesting that David Bowie had that fear of flying before, and he was like, I'm not going to fly until, you know, if nothing happens until 1976, then I'll get back on a plane. And then he gets back on a plane in the 80s, and it fills with smoke. Yeah. And, like, I don't, I don't know what was going on, but, like, seriously, like, that's my personal nightmare. So, yeah, so... David Bowie saved Peter Frampton's life. Hey, thanks, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. On, on the 6th of June, 1987, David Bowie took the stage at one of Germany's most poignant landmarks, which was the German Reichstag in West Berlin. And this has been a cat that this has actually been considered a catalyst to the wall coming down in Berlin. So David Bowie was instrumental in helping bring mm. down the berlin wall but 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 really hasselhoff <laughs> but hasselhoff was there let's credit where credit is due but was. but in 87 uh he was performing at an event as part of his massive 80s explosion the glass spider tour and this was the european leg the thin white jew joined the bill for a three-day rock festival with both Say it. I can't say it. I can't say that. Say it. You say it. 
Republic? Oh, no. Phil Collins and Genesis. Yeah, and the Eurythmics performing <laughs> at the Platz der Republic event. While the concert was being held in West Berlin, the event's location actually meant that East Berliners could also hear the performance. Mm. Rumors that the festival deliberately turned the speakers in the other directions have never been confirmed, but the vibrations of the show could be felt across the wall. We kind of heard a few of East Berliners might actually get a chance to hear the thing, but we didn't realize what number they would be hearing them in. Mm. And there were thousands of people on the other side that had congregated at the wall to be able to listen to David Bowie. Mm. Like, think about that. Like that is that is ins- that I know I, I that hits me so hard, that hits me. That, that David Bowie kicked down the last physical vestige of communism. Yeah. <laughs> what? That's, I mean, but really, Hasselhoff. Okay. So anyway, so it was like a double concert where the wall was the division, and we could hear them cheering and singing along from the other side. God, now even I get choked up. It was breaking my heart. I've never done anything like that in my life, and I never—I guess I never will again, which was a quote from Bowie. Mm. One of the songs that was dear to the heart of most Bowie's fan would hold extra weight in such a setting. Uh, Bowie wrote the 1977 hit Hero while staying in Berlin, and midway through the set, he performed the song and saw it take on a whole new life. He told Rolling Stones, when we did Heroes at the Berlin concert, it felt almost like a prayer, he remarked. I've never felt that again. That's the town where it was written, and that's the town that the particular situation was written about. It was just extraordinary. I was drained after that show. It was one of the most emotional performances I've ever done. Rolling Stones reports Bowie said back in 2003. I was in tears. There were thousands on the other side that had come close to the wall, so it was like having a double double concert with the wall as the division. Never want to miss the occasion to highlight the unifying power of art. Bowie called out to the East Berliners before playing Heroes. He said, we send our best wishes to all of our friends who are other on the other side of the wall, exclaimed the star man. It would be a sentiment that would send over 200 East Berliners charging at the wall with subsequent arrests and beatings. Wow. Oh, wow. Soon enough, a small riot had ensued and the demonstrators began chanting, the wall must fall. The wall must fall. It would be one of the many acts of civil unrest that would lead up to the fall of the wall in 1989. But TJ, me and you sat in the living room. And and honestly, at the time, barely knew what I was actually looking at. Barely recognized or, or understood what was actually going on. Yeah. And, and I didn't I didn't know what was going on at all. I was nine years old. I didn't I, But I'd heard the wall. People talk about the wall, the wall, the Berlin Wall forever. Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Oh, well, maybe but it has been an ongoing theme for a long time. And now here's here are these people who look really excited and happy and they're tearing a wall down. They're tearing this wall down. I think this is this 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 feels significant. I'm just not sure why. Because I mean, I was like 14 and didn't fully grasp what I was looking at. But yeah, in retrospect, that's unbelievable. And um to to think that there were riots caused when when Bowie did a call out to the people on the other side is is pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it, I remember watching it with you, and at one point, the wall came down and a man met up with another man, and they started hugging, mm-hmm. and then they just parted. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, those guys don't even know who they are. Like they don't know each other. Yeah. 
that was my thought. These guys don't know who they, they don't know each other and yet they're embracing. This is a big moment. Like I didn't understand the implications of the wall coming down. I just knew I was watching history. Yeah. And then David Hasselhoff. And David Hasselhoff. Yep. And then, and then the Hoff, right. <laughs> Freedom. So uh, there is, I, I think there is a, a little bit of footage of that. Uh, I'm not going to dig it up because it was one of those videos within an article that I just don't have the energy to find right now. But do you want a fun fact? Fun fact. Fun fact. Okay. The music press is never slow to send up an icon with a nickname such as Bruce Springsteen, which is? The Boss. Okay. Whitney Houston is? The Voice. Yes. Yeah, the voice, yeah. Madonna. The Material Girl. Well, Queen of Pop as well. Oh, okay. Queen of Pop, sure. Yeah. Uh, but that's no different than David Bowie. Do you know what the press gave him as a nickname? The Big Weenie Spaceman. Oh, you're so close. Oof. Uh, Will, do you have a... I, I do not have a guess on this one, no. They gave him the nickname The Dame. Interesting. Which okay. stuck. Yeah. Because, you know why? Because there's nothing, there's nothing like a dame. And there's nothing like David Bowie. So he's okay. the dame. All right. <laughs> he's Dame David Bowie, I guess. Okay, now I know that you can even read this right here. Um, I put this in. Okay, that uh, LD has noted that TJ is going to hate... That she's going to talk about this particular moment in David's life, but we have to touch on it because, uh, well, yeah, you see where this is going. If not, there will be an open revolt. So, without further ado, we'll talk about Tin Machine. Oh God! Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, just 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 hold up. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I did this in a way that maybe you won't hate me. Okay. Okay. The Tin Machine was a British American hard rock supergroup born in formed in. 1988, notably for being fronted by David Bowie. Right. The band consisted of David Bowie on leads, and then Reeve Gabriels on guitar and vocals, Tony Fox Sales on bass and vocals, and Hunt Sales on drum and vocals. Tony and Hunt are sons of the American comedian Soupy Sales, oh. and additional musicians who performed with the band on tour but we're not part of the band itself. We're Kevin Armstrong, who played the band's first studio album. And then, oh my gosh, it's Eric Shermerhorn. <laughs> and I think I'm saying that right. Uh, who played on the second tour and the live album, Tin Machine Live, Oy Vey Baby. <laughs> okay, drummer Hunter Sales says the band reflects the sound of the band. There you go. And Bowie stated that he and the members joined up to make music that we enjoy listening to and rejuvenate himself artistically. The band recorded two studio albums and one live album before dissolving in 1992, after which Bowie returned to his solo career. By the end of 2012, they had reportedly sold over 2 million albums, and Bowie would later credit this time with Tin Machine as instrumental in revitalizing his career after the 1980s. And that's all I'm going to say about Tin Machine. Thank you. You have to address it. You have to acknowledge it, and we move on. It's, it's sort of like, well, I mean, you talked about Caress of Steel. I talked in your Neil Peart series. I talked about um, Van Halen 3. Yeah. Uh, we played co we played Cookie Puss during the Adam yeah, Yacht no, series, so I guess we had to cold, so. yeah. we had to go there. Um, there were, oddly, there were two bands in the late 80s, I guess maybe in the early 90s, 
that featured very popular, very prominent musicians doing something I didn't quite get. You had David Bowie in Tin Machine, hmm. and you had Mark Knopfler in a band called the Notting Hillbillies. Uh, yes. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. And, I about that. And in both cases, I'm like, I, I love Bowie, love Knopfler. What the bleep? Yeah, pretty much. What are you doing? What is yeah. this? And it's not, neither was terrible. This just not great. <laughs> it's very, very middling and not to their normal standard. Well, we're going to have to talk about them again. Yay! That was, that was, I had to mention it, but so I'm sorry to TJ for having to bring it up, but like I said, there will be you dipped, you dipped your toe in the water and you moved along. I appreciate it. Part there, of the story, yeah. There you go. So, and also, bully on me for covering uh, four years of David Bowie's life in a paragraph. <laughs> yeah. I somehow managed to do that. Thank so. you. Woot. <laughs> um, so another facet of David's life that you guys might not be too familiar with is the fact that he actually really liked boxing. Huh. It was Richard Lord, an American coach in Austin, Texas, who actually taught David how to box. He was a fan of the sport in school. And in fact, his art teacher, Mr. Frampton, if you mm-hmm. guys have been listening, uh, mm-hmm. that's Peter Frampton's dad, also taught boxing. On the Diamond Dogs tour in 1974, he yanked a pair of red boxing gloves, which were ever so fetching. And at recording the album, Let's Dance, with uh, now Roger's on the, hang on, ba-ba-ba. So if you look at Let's Dance, one of the sleeves has him in the same gloves. And when he was preparing for his 1983 tour to promote in Dallas, uh, he decided to go get fit for the road. So He's getting ready to go on tour in 1983, and he decides that he wants to get fit for this tour. And people are confused because David has always hated the gym. Like, it's just not his place. Like, he hated going and working out. So in much the fashion of getting saxophone lessons from a saxophone aficionado or who else was it that just like called up somebody and was like, hey, I'm, oh, John Bonham. John Bonham wanted to uh, learn how to play the drums. So he just called up like the best drummer and was like, some, some ve- well, very well established drummer just walked up to his house and knocked on his door. Yeah. Yeah. I'm potty for cars, right? He kind right, of, correct. he kind of did the same thing with Richard Lord, which was he just like wandered up to the trainer and was like, hey, can you teach me how to box? And he was like, sure. So after a couple of weeks, he had him legging the steps and like punching the bags and then he progressed to sparring and was doing okay Uh, but then he went on the road and lord never saw him again he would appreciate taking part in a few rounds from time to time over the next 20 (laughs) years or so i just thought and that was something a little bit more fun uh, that it was just like a weird thing that david bowie would do is just like he really liked boxing and would incorporate it in some of his art which was fun so that's where we're going to close out this week's episode (laughs) So I'm going to have a small debate with you guys, okay? Okay. And I know this is going to come out of the blue, but I thought it would be interesting. My question is, do you think that David should have gone to his brother's funeral? Ooh. Sit up for this answer. Um, that's tough because it's that's a that's a deeply personal decision. Um, I could name, I, mean, I know people who did not go to the funerals of family members or friends or whatever because they knew they couldn't 
they wouldn't be able to handle it. I would, you know, I would be an emotional wreck. It would end up being all about me blubbering and crying and carrying on, and I don't want to do that. I want to say when we did our episode on Dean Martin that Frank Sinatra, despite considering Dino his brother, didn't go to his funeral because he said he would he 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 did not know if he would have been able to stand it. So that's a hard one because you know we're not there, we don't know them, we don't know what the relationship was like. I'd probably say, I mean, it would be I would have, but. That doesn't mean that that was the right decision for him to make necessarily. So I would just kind of say whatever he felt like was right, which was in this case to not go, I would say that was probably the right decision. Fair. All fair. Uh, Will? I'm going to, TJ summed up really nicely. I think it's hard because again, every family dynamic is different, you know, and those relationships are so intricate that I can certainly relate to the idea of not being able to handle it. You just don't know how that is going to strike you. You know, um, we prepare as much as we can for the loss of our loved ones, even if they are inevitable. But when it happens, our reaction is awfully not of our choosing. Mm -hmm. So I think there is an inherent sort of emotional blowback there that you just can't account for. Now, I think the reasons why David Bowie would be unable to attend are largely not his fault. Uh, There is the media circus, which, again, is deplorable in such a situation. I know that a lot of people actually notify press figures in advance for a big event like that and basically say, hey, you know, back off. Or if you're going to send a representative, send one person. I've I've heard of these things happening, Mm -hmm. uh, basically to manage something like that. Uh, I can only compare it to me and my family. And I would say if... I was a celebrity and one of my siblings died, I would go. But again, that's me, my family dynamic. And again, something could happen that could totally blow me out of the water. Maybe I couldn't handle it. And and I would probably have, in that instance, would pay for perimeter security that would be really, yeah. really tight and really strict in terms of policing who gets in. Because you... You don't want to make it a, a, an embarrassing circus where suddenly it's not about respecting the life and legacy of the person who's passed. It's about a-holes with cameras, with the big long sports lenses, trying to take pictures of you. Yeah, I mean, one of the most infamous examples was Michael J. Fox's wedding. He actually hired a former Secret Service member to operate security for his wedding. And there were allegedly paparazzi dressed up as llamas hiding in a field next to it. Yeah, it was just berserk. But yeah, to that point that's the stuff that would want to be you'd want to mitigate as much as possible yeah and for me i have to put myself into david bowie's position both publicly and professionally you have to think at this point david bowie is one of the most recognizable people in the world yeah like he has to be careful with where he lives so that he doesn't get mobbed so you have that professional idea And then you have that personal thing. If I was David, I don't know if I would have gone to the funeral specifically out of respect. Now, putting me also in that that mind space, I probably would have paid for the whole funeral. I would have paid for everything that went into, I'd pay for the plot, the headstone, the casket, any arrangement that had to be made, I would have paid for it. And then I would have set aside a time to see my family. Mm. That might have been what, but not actually gone to the, the the real funeral. So I can see both sides of him getting like crap for not going to his brother's funeral. But also you have to look at it as like, he's one of the most recognizable people in the world. And, and that the grieving process is so different for every person. 
you don't know how you're going to act in a certain situation until that situation hits you. Agreed. Because now they've said, now, you know, well, when, when they're trying to figure out when like a child goes missing, let's say a child goes missing, the Madeline McCann thing. You remember her? The name sounds familiar, but I can't remember the exact. She was kidnapped while her parents were on vacation. Oh, that's so, right. Okay, yeah. But they were like saying, well, the dad isn't crying and the mom's crying too much. And, da, 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 da. and it's like, you don't know how people grieve. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that that's that's a, a, an instance where playing the the amateur shrink is so inappropriate. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because so there I, are some people who who do wall off and bottle up emotions and and just they let them out in private or they never let them out. And mm-hmm. there are some people who I mean, they cry because, the, you know, there's not mayonnaise on their hamburger, or <laughs> you know, who are just oddly emotional over everything. So to look to look at people and say, well, you know, I don't know if the dad looks sad enough. Hey, screw you. You have no clue what's going on in that in that guy's heart and, yeah, and, and yeah. how he's dealing with stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And that's and that's, I think, how you have to look at this. David made a choice that he thought was best out of respect for his brother and people who don't know the entire story of his life are analyzing him and attacking him for a choice he made. Yeah, it's not right. I'm going to say that in that moment, David at least felt like he was doing the right thing. So why did I ask this question? I just thought it was something really interesting because it was always playing on me. It's like, what would I do Mm -hmm. if I was one of the biggest pop stars in the world and something happened to my brother. Yeah. You know, but I I would also say it's also something that's impossible. It's impossible for me to put myself in his shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I have no, because nobody cares what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Like almost literally no one cares where I go and where I buy my groceries and what I, what I, you know, what I do when I'm in my free time is I'm like, like literally, cares, yeah. no one cares, not one person on planet Earth cares that I'm about to go to the grocery store. Um, you know, and, but then you're, if you're him, like you, you said, he can't go out in public. He can't go to the movies. He can't go to the mall. He can't go for a jog. That's because he would be, he would, I mean, you, I can't, I literally cannot fathom living that life. So it's hard for me to put myself in his shoes to answer from his perspective. I would just kind of say, hey, whatever he figured he needed to do and did is probably the right thing. Yeah, exactly. So. He made a choice. It is not our choice to make. And I know that we all would do something different. And it's also like, you know, how close are you to your half brother? For those listeners who don't know, TJ is my biological brother, but TJ is also what, TJ? What are you to me? Uh, we are technically half-siblings. Yeah. We are half-siblings. In the biological sense, not in the, I mean, we were raised in the same home. Yeah. Um, even though she's an annoying little cuss, I would whip anybody's ass if they <laughs> if they, th- they threatened or bothered her in any way. And, uh, you know, t- typical uh, defensive big brother type stuff. And yeah, I'm that annoying little sister that uh, would make sure that if anybody hurt my big brother, that they have some bitter tasting coffee, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You're only going to tote an ass whipping from me if you mess with her. You're probably going to die. <laughs> <laughs> my sister thinks you've aggrieved me in some way. It's really not going to go well for you. <laughs> yeah. Don't mess with my brother. I will kill you. 
<laughs> and uh, I think that's a great place to end this episode this week. Yes, uh, yes, we'll by frightening our audience. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to end somewhere, right, guys? Right. It's been two weeks. We don't know how to behave ourselves anymore. I'm not saying this was the best episode, but come on. Like, <laughs> I, I spent a good three to four hours putting this together. <laughs> Um, hopefully next week we will be concluding with our series on David Bowie. I ended in a very odd place because I did not want to introduce the next person that we are going to be introducing in this episode because the story is so much greater. So if you're wondering why I ended on like 1988, 89, that's the reason why is because we're about to meet someone extremely important to David Bowie. And I wanted to give that person plenty of time a person with who goes by one name perhaps perhaps mm, perhaps. so wow we're, we're gonna we're gonna jump from there all the way to the end in the next episode that is gonna be some kind of something it's gonna be a lot it's gonna be a long one but we're gonna do it i'm going to do it it's going to happen so if you think that we are doing an awesome job and you'd like to give money <laughs> why wouldn't you after this <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to get those tens and tens of cents that people are going to throw at us. You can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us at Twitter at rock and roll LT. You can find our Instagram at rock and roll heaven LT, which is honestly the best place to find us. That's where you find all our updates. That's where I was posting the videos uh, explaining that, you know, I was literally working in a circus for the last two weeks. And it was a lot of fun, but it was very tiring. And I'm so sorry that we took that inadvertent hiatus, but we're back. Yay. You can check out our Facebook page at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com for any kind of reason. We are here to listen to you guys. We love the hey, how you doings. We love the um, actuallys. Uh, and I could take or leave the you guys suck. <laughs> If so, just have we gotten any of those? Uh, we've gotten one. We've gotten some. We've gotten one. Really? We got one hate letter back before you guys even became a, a thing. Oh, okay. Uh, but make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And again, guys, thank you so much for checking out the, this episode out. Please make sure you check next week's episode out. And then after that, we're going to be starting our series on yeah so make sure to come back for that as well and then from all of us here at rock and roll heaven all of you guys out there remember the light at the end of the tunnel maybe you good night everybody you want to say goodbye i can't top that i'm just gonna (laughs) let that one settle into the ether and then tj (laughs) bye everybody all right to wrap up this uh, episode, I am going to be playing the song Never Let Me Down, which was a big letdown for David Bowie, but it is a very interesting song and I kind of dig it. So here we go. Never Let Me Down. We can dig it. Uh, I, I did forget to put something in here. Okay. Manfred Man's Earth Band. All right. Woo. I, I, you know what's bad? I, I was, I had that in my head before the discussion at the end, and I was going to scream it going into the last song if you didn't, if you didn't <laughs> mention it at some point, and then I just forgot. Ah.
Well, we have satisfied the requirement, everyone. The oh, thank God. The mandated. federally mandated Manfred Man's Earth Band reference to the podcast by the skin of our teeth. Oh, this is actually just me yelling the phrase Manfred Man's Earth Band. Manfred Man's Earth, Earth Band. You still paid homage to the Manfred Man's Earth Band gods. Yeah. The sacrifice has been made. Yes. You can continue we this can, podcast. We can live another week. So here is David Bowie with Never Let Me Down.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.